what's happening. Welcome to season three of Apples and Snakes, the podcast. I'm your host, Yomi Shode, and we have a whole new set of poets and are still focusing on what it means to be black, British, and a poet or spoken word artist. If you are interested in getting a greater insight into the journeys of some of your faves, then join us and keep listening. Saying that, if you do like what you're hearing, remember to subscribe wherever you would usually listen to your podcasts and rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Apples and Snakes podcast. My name is Yomi Shode. And, you know, it is very, it's a beautiful thing to build a community of um, like-minded people within the scene or whatever field you're in, right? Wherever the field, wherever the creative field is, you will grow a community of folks around you. But it really is something to grow a community of friends. And the guests that I'm speaking to today is, I would, I would like to say, unless should he say anything different, a friend. We have performed on many stages together. We have, we have um, featured on each other's songs. It's, it's, we, we, we have shown each other drafted work that we was nervous of in the first instance that's then gone on to do amazing things. And it's, 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 with through those years that we've grown as as artists and grown as dare I say men and grown as as poets and even we're parents now, my guy. This is amazing stuff. It's an absolute pleasure to introduce the one and only Joshua Idehen. Josh, how are you, good sir? How are you doing, fam? How are you doing? How are you doing? Yeah, I think all of those things are present and correct, friend. Uh, writing, sharing, uh, confidants, uh, featured artists, and and, and parents, <laughs> parents. That that last one is, is still is still kicking me. I wake up some days and I'm like, am I a parent? Is this, mm. is this, is, this is this child getting deep parenting? But yeah, it, it's been a while, man. It's been it's been it's been a while. We are elders by force. By force, I, I <laughs> by am, force by and I, I remember sending you like first. First drafts of Distant Daily Joel. First drafts of early, early, early poems from Mannerism. And, and, and it, yeah, when, when we, it's not easy to share work. Do you see what I mean? And like, I'll, I'm really keen to talk to you about not only the poems, but also your musical touch, your theatrical touch, and all of these different things and how it builds into the artist that you are. Do you see what I mean? Um, and it's exciting, man. Um, how are you? How are you feeling right now, man? Um, I'm all good. I've just been on a, uh, on a holiday. Uh, the missus was like, all of this touring that you're doing, I demand a holiday. And mm. she put it straight in June. So we went to London, to Bournemouth. It was good. We saw some good friends, yourself included. Uh, just got back and obviously there's like a ton of work that has to be done so I'm getting into it I finally started get go back into writing mm. like I don't know if this happens to, to you but my brain can only take one mode at a time performance mode 
there, I'm doing it. Admin mode, there, I'm doing it. So if I'm given like a writing project where my brain's in admin mode, I find it really difficult. Like the words don't mm. come as well. Or if I'm like in performance mode and I have to do admin, then my brain is kind of like locked. I mean, I can do it, but it's never, it's very, it's a kind of laborious, painful uh, time, period. So having a holiday was a, was a good chance to re- reset my brain and give those that creative side of me a chance to flourish and, and find its way back. And mm. yeah, I've got into the writing. I've got just written my second piece, which will hopefully end up being our next project. And it's, it's all quite exciting. You know, you start, you know, the great thing about writing is, is always to put, when you're writing music in particular, if you, you start seeing the potential, you get excited for, oh, when I perform in front of people and I, I drop this line, it was going to go, ooh, ooh. I mean, it really happens like that. <laughs> yeah, but you yeah, kind yeah. Of, in that, in that, when you're writing it, you get really excited because like when you manage to capture the moment in the set of words and it's your set of words and it's like only you came up with, like I, I was thinking about a line and like, I'm, I'm a big fan of like taking the, analogies and like giving it a little twist and when you when you do when I do that I'm like ooh <laughs> I'm probably the only one who's ever thought about this and like mm. yeah so that that's the space I'm in now and that's it's great. It's great to be it's, it's great to still have that still have that connection with your art. You know? Um so and this I, I, I asked this right and it might actually be it might actually be something I don't think I'm aware of. Um, which which is a bit more exciting as well. Um, in relation to poetry, um, when when did you start writing poetry, and why did you start writing poetry? Uh, when did I start writing poetry? Uh, that um, I think the first time I wrote a poem, like a poem that I was kind of really proud of. It was in response to Dizzy Rascal, actually. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had written poems before in the past and people had told me they were good. I wrote poems when I was in, in school, in, uh, when I went to uh, um, a, uh, college in Hackney, Hackney Community College, shout out. And I, I had one English teacher tell me like, oh my God, this is really good. He tried to convince me to record it, but I just couldn't bother. Then I had another English teacher tell me like I'll never make it as a writer. Why do it's amazing? Um, let me see. The other teacher who wanted me to record a poem and tried to push me was a white woman. So balances out. Balance. Um, <laughs> balances out. I mean, it balances out. Uh, but I think the first time I actually kind of like was compelled to write a poem for me because I wanted to write a piece. Um, at the time, there was this channel called Channel U. Then it became Channel AKA. R.I.P. Yeah, like, <laughs> but it, it, it was, it was, at the time when it was Channel U, it was raw, because every other channel, I, I, a lot of youngers don't know about this, as he said youngers, anyway, a lot of youngers didn't, don't know this, but back in the day, you used to watch your TVs, uh, your, your music videos, not on YouTube, but on TV, mm. and there were some channels that, if you want to see the same video over and over again, you called up. And you on the phone call that child, like, I don't know, I think a pound a second or something. And you text it, you tell them the number of the, of the video one, and you'd be put in the queue and you have to sit there and wait for everybody's own to go. Mm. And so channel you, every other channel used to show like, you know, music from America, like pop, but channel you was the only one dedicated to grind. And all the videos there were looked like they were filmed on phones. 
they're all cheap in the kind of council mm. estate. And I remember, and back then I wasn't really into crime, but I always found it really funny watching kids just sitting on their, on their block, you know, shooting gun fingers at the screen. Uh, but I came home one day from bartending and I saw this video of this boy and he was like surrounded by mirrors. Like some shots, he had friends, but he was surrounded by mirrors and he was like, was having this argument with this girl. And he was, you know, he was like, the girl was bad. And the girl was like, oh, well. And the girl was like, <laughs> mm. and the girl would say something to him. And he'd be like, oh, well. And I was transfixed. And I remember I only caught the last 30 seconds, which was, these rascals, I love you. Mm. And I caught the last 30 seconds. But back then, again, in them days, people used to uh, put little snippets of a different music video. Mm-hmm. on the back of their main music video. Kind of mm-hmm. like, I think Missy Elliott started and she was the one who did it. She'd do a, you know, get your freak on the number. End of that, she, she put mm-hmm. it up in the song. Yeah. So he had put Vexed and I was, I was just consumed by mm-hmm. that. Like, the, 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 the anger, the, the rage, the, the rawness, just the pure honesty. It just, it, whereas every other hip-hop song always took on a kind of a mythical, fantastical, uh, um, persona to me it was always kind of like you know i don't know biggie talking about shooting several people okay cool great that's just a mafia film you know what i'm saying mm, it's like you know mm. the wu-tang kung fu okay everything's kung fu great whereas this was like oh my god this guy's trying about hackney ball he's talking about e you know east mm. london he, he took, you know he, he hit me in a way that i don't think any other hip-hop song and it, it compelled me to write and i wrote uh a piece uh which was called um early mob which ended up becoming the first track I did with uh, some producers called LV and kind of started my musical career. Mm. So that was the first time, I think that was the first time I, I wrote something. And I, I remember I used to work in a bar at the time, which is why I came home late. Uh, and I, um, I, po- I, there was this other uh, bartender, Alex, who I went to. I'm like, oh, I've got this piece. Can I, can I read it to you? And he was like, it's like, like a poem, it's like a book. I think it's like a rap, but it's a poem. I read it to him and he was like, John, who will go? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm just, I mean, I'll say things in Hackney, you know, when you come home late at 3 a.m. Shit, I was in Hackney on Mare Street, so I wrote it down, and what do you think? And he was like, yeah, it's good, but are you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine. It's, it's a poem. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I wrote it and I wanted somebody else to read it. Yeah, and and he was like, "Oh, this is really good. You should you should, you should do something." And this was kind of like at least a year before I had started university. So, so with the why was part of the um, the urgency to write, which also I think aligns itself neatly with you. Um, with Dizzy talking about the locality of stuff, with you talking about Hackney Bow, like. East London, these things are close in proximity to me as uh, not like Biggie's hypnotized video of the yacht. Do you know what I mean? And all of these things. Yeah, all yeah, of yeah. this looks, all of this stuff on Channel U, it looks very gritty. It looks very much like the, it looks very much like my landscape, my everyday thing that I see. Was that, was that part of, was that part of the reason? And, and does that still kind of, does that still charge in you a lot now in terms of your reasoning behind what you do, what, why you do what you do? Because it feels closer to home. I think it was more about the form at the time because I feel yeah. for a long time, a lot of my, um, my understanding of art 
and in particular uh, music was informed by American music, uh, hip hop and R&B. And, and so I think I had never seen, I feel I, I, my, my work is often can be quite uh, internal and introspective. And, you know, I use a lot of uh, imagery and it's, it's, I never really talk about the streets as much as I did that first time. But I feel with watching Jesus Rascal doing I, uh, I Love You, it was seeing someone showing me that it didn't have to be like Talib Kweli or Common or Dre or, or any of that. Mm. You know, it, it, it wasn't so much he was saying, you can talk about the streets, you can talk about, you know, how hard things are for you here in London. It was more like, you don't have to rhyme <laughs> like Americans. Mm. You don't have to rhyme like anyone else. Because you have to remember, this rascal, he didn't even sound like other grime artists. The only person who sounded similar to this rascal at the time was Crazy Titch. And he was like, he was a lot more similar to typical grime music than, than this rascal. This rascal was squealing. Yeah. Right. On this track. He was, he was not afraid to let his voice go into high notes. Mm. Right? And for me, it was, it felt like someone was saying, you can be yourself. <laughs> you know, mm. you can, you can do whatever you want. Right, as much as you want, like that is a feasible way to kind of approach. And I think at the time, I, yeah, I, uh, I was a bit extroverted. I liked performing, and I guess I, I had a lot to say about kind of like myself, about how what I taught. And but for a very long time, I just assumed that like if I was going to do it, it was going to be as a novelist, as a writer, or maybe I wouldn't do it at all. Maybe I just you know express it through kind of like appreciating other people's music, you know, and other people's lives, like Rufus Wainwright's Radiohead. But then Richard Rascal comes in and he's like, no, fam, like, look at me. I'm in, and at the time, I guess, was, was good. what was so interesting about Dizzy was that <clears throat> he was, he, I felt like he was kind of like a complete outlier in a scene that was supposed to be designed by outliers for outliers. Mm. Like everybody else is doing 140 BPM, repeating their bars, you know, angry and, you know, kind of in a very braggadocio way. And here he is talking about, like, you know, I made it through the fog. I can't let you take the piss. Mm. I don't want to get vexed. I don't want to get, the, you know what I'm saying? And it, it, it was introspective in a way that I guess other people weren't. And it was fearless in a way that a lot of people weren't. Like he had laid it all on the, the song. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I guess that, that that was what kind of, subconsciously at first I don't remember and I, you know, took to heart. You've played a very integral part in the poetry the poetry scene, poetry spoken word scene. You have played a very, very, very integral part. Um I don't know how much you want to talk about this, but I know I remember the 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 nights that you've held in the past. Um that's that showcased a lot of artists who are now super mega stars now, like Ed Sheeran. Do you see what I mean? Like you mm. have, and this was when nobody really knew who these people were, you know? They were just coming to just like have, an, to, to join in the open mic or to have this set of time to share their work. You know, you have worked with bands, like you ran, you've ran multiple groups, music. Um... 
I want to I want to hold a question I want to ask, but I do want to explore that journey from when poetry nights weren't really as popular, but with the touch that you as well as other people put on this, the spotlight you put on this, it grew into its own beast, so to speak. What was those What was those days like? Well, I think um, I'm gonna gonna break this question into this answer into several parts. And the first part is a point of regret that, uh, and this is something I'm gonna say to all the new nights that are starting: document your stuff. Just, mm-hmm. just you know, just hire one person. Write an arts council fund, get money, and hire one person whose literal job it is is to record every night, everything that happens. Because if I had done that, oh my God, you understand? We're talking, do you, no, seriously, if I, if I had literally just kind of like said every night for the, what was it, from 2006 to mm. 2014, if I had recorded every single night, just something random, just a recorded, just did that, filmed them, took pictures, had a little catalog in the hoarding way that I felt like then, I could, I could go Netflix and be like, yo, I've got a documentary that has Ed Sheeran, Kate Tempest, Kate Tempest, um, Shabaka Hutchins, uh, Jamie Woon, John McClary, Beardy Man, like, I, I can go on for ages. Heidi Vogel, David J, like, I mean, and, and I say this not just as someone who ran nights, but also about the poetry scene. Like, we yeah. had so much greatness come through our outdoors and I think a lot of the promoters right we just didn't have our freaking caps on in that kind of way of in terms of preservation where preservation if not just for like let's make a documentary and make oodles of cash plus just in terms of like this is history this is heritage mm. many of the venues I performed in have closed many venues around nineteen have closed now. So that's that's it. The second thing I wanted to kind of like highlight was that um it it wasn't just me. Mm. There was a whole community of knights that like had inspired me and we all helped to kind of flourish and, and propel and kind of like support each other. Mm-hmm. If not true, kind of like actual abuse support, we have been places where we could fly and we could kind of like ask questions and get feedback and test our artists. Also in terms of rivalry, like I remember when I started Pong Jazzy, like people didn't believe poetry could make money. Mm-hmm. And there weren't po- that many poetry nights. And everyone assumed poetry nights, it was, it, if you were going to it, it would be like five pounds and two pounds. And at the time, there was only one poetry night that actually dared to charge a tenner. And that was one taste. Mm-hmm. And one taste was all the way in South London, Balan. And I mean, they said it was a poetry night. It, did, it had usually the same poets almost uh, like Inua and uh, uh, Polar Bear. And all they could, they had, later on, they got King Tempest and they brought David G. about it was seen as poetry and music. So they were the only ones doing it. Mm-hmm. So then when I started doing uh, pole jazzy with Musa and Inua, like, I remember, because at the time I'd come out from the open mic scene, a lot of the open micers kind of like, they used to call me like, oh yeah, it's Josh running that 10 pound night. We'll see how well that does. Mm-hmm. And then we sold out, we sold out the, what's it called? First two years running in a burlesque bar in East Central. And that was because, like, we had kind of done a lot of the the groundwork of going to one taste, learning, and knowing the, the promoters, and meeting up with artists. And I, I guess, you know, at the time, I was very, very about supporting the scene and 
building networks and having communities. And then I was very kind of like loud and infectious. And I would run up to people like and go, oh my God, you're the greatest person ever. Come and join my night. And I guess at that time, there were a lot of, there was, I guess, I don't know, I think there was, there were a lot of artists who were just about to make it and they were doing very well, but not so well that they couldn't do a night for like 50 pounds. And at that time, 50 pounds was a lot. So, mm. you know, I had a night that had Paul Sebastian, Polar Bear, uh, Johnny McClary and, uh, Scroogeous Pip literally a week before Thou Shall Always Kill had gone stratospheric. And mm. another night, you know, you had, uh, what's it called? Uh, Chris Redmond and Ed Sheeran. And uh, uh, I guess, yeah, I, I performed a bit at the time. Yeah, you, you, you had a lot of people just kind of like mixing, matching. Mm. And we, a lot of these artists were performing at several nights and like, you know, getting their break at different places because uh, I guess a lot of the labels were also checking these nights out. And it was a, it was a wild, amazing time. Uh, when, when you kind of look back and think, oh my God, did I go to that night? Mm-hmm. Were there really that many people? And there was, there was, I think I, I, there was a point, there were so many really good nights that were already sort of like, you know, on the lookout for the next best thing and bringing people in from abroad. I remember I brought in, what's it called? Shane, uh, Shane Coison, and that was just a ruthless night because Sh- Sh- Shane Coison, he don't mess about. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If he's doing a 10 minute set, he's eating everybody mm-hmm. up. Uh, uh, and, and you'd go to another night and you'd discover someone new and then that person would do a round of the scene. And it was, yeah, it was, it was really great. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was really exciting to be an artist then. And I guess that tradition has been carried on by people like Outspoken and obviously yourselves with uh, Box, Boxton, mm. you know, and, and Joe Das has kind of taken on that sort of responsibility in a way. And yeah, it, um, did that for, kind of like almost a decade. And the problem with these things is like, funding is always an issue. And if everyone in who's kind of doing this is an artist, you know, none of us were kind of business minded at all. So, you know, when you kind of have to sit down and think, okay, either this makes money or I have to focus on my art. Yeah. And you, you have to kind of choose one. And I guess, yeah, I, I was the last person, well, me and my then partner, Shallow, we were the last people. And we had tried to turn Pro Jazz into like a magazine and, you know, uh, turn it into a charity and find like ways to make it run events rather, uh, kind of like a bespoke event rather than just the same old nights. But yeah, I guess after a while, it was just a time to, it was just a time to pass the baton on. I had to kind of focus on myself and my, on my own career. I think I'd gone, I'd gone tired of seeing people kind of like come in and then just, take off and come in like, when am I? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I can't always be the pit stop. You know, at one point I have to get into the driver's seat. I must be my own Lewis Hamilton. Yeah. So in, in, in being in the driver's seat and in looking back at the, at your numerous, at the numerous amounts of like achievements over the years, what, um, if you could pick one moment or what point that 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 you're most proud of that you return to on the sad days on the high days what is the one what is that one moment that that consistently is is on your mind that kind of keeps you going i you know i, I mean i say like 
I'm, I'm quite blessed that I've, I have rule for, in terms of which one is top, it's, it's, it's changed with kind of like at least, if not every year, every other year. Like this year was a high point of my life, really, because mm. I performed on my first time on national television. Mm. And, uh, it, it was in Sweden. It's, uh, it's a show called TV4. And basically they, um, you have to perform, what's it called? They're very famous people, very famous artists who had a long story career. They get awarded a prize by the King of Sweden and they get other artists to perform songs of that person's, uh, back catalog. So you're essentially performing to like, you're performing the covers of artists to the artist's face mm. and the King of Sweden. <laughs> yeah, so if, if you don't do a good job, like there's, 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 there's footage of like people performing to Sting and Sting is looking at them like, how dare you? Yeah. <laughs> how dare you, you slaughter my yeah. track? <laughs> like proper giving them Uber. And then there are footage of like, for example, the I've been really famous one is like, um, first aid kit, uh, first aid kit performing the song by Emily Harris, I think. And yeah. she's there crying. So when we, when, when I was given the place, I was the only artist with the smallest profile, I guess. I've only just started here in Stockholm. And the producer told me like, okay, the, 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 the goal for this year is to get the king to dance. The king has never danced. He's never, ever danced. He's mm. never danced. And so, yeah, well, and we were going, we were meant to close out the show once in a lifetime. And it, it was my first time performing in years. It was my first time performing in front of like an audience, uh, what's it called on television. Like, and everyone was sat down and you're, you know, you're just looking at all of these dictators so or them royalties or whatever. And I was, I was, I was proper kind of like nervous. Mm. Right. And when we got on the stage, the whole kind of, basically the decade of performing in front of people, just all of that muscle memory just came in and it was, it was a breeze. Like halfway through the first verse, everybody stood up and was dancing and I was like, okay, okay, it's working. And at that point, you know, you, you kind of like, I guess, because your body knows exactly what to do, your mind can kind of like freestyle and yeah. you can sort of be enjoying the moment where instead of just thinking, you know, what's the next move? What's the next line? You can just be there just like, oh, this is great. And then I came off stage and everybody ran into the green room going, the king danced, the king danced. Oh my God, he was dancing with Angelique Kijo. And yeah, like... I was on cloud nine the whole mm. day. Like I had, you know, what's it called? Obviously having people like Max Martin come and shake your hands and tell you, that was really good. That was really good. And you're like, I didn't even know it was Max Martin. So they asked what they told me, that's Max Martin. He just said you were really good. I was like, right, okay. Mm. So yeah, I guess looking back, I would say that in terms of my artistic career, that is definitely like the highlight. That's the kind of point that meant that, you know, deciding to, to make, to make poetry and music the way I've chosen to make, which it has only been as a result of years of trial and error and practice and, and failure and discovery and, you know, hardships has all kind of led to this point And that's all been validated by this one thing. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm blessed that I can have that. Um, I appreciate that. And I think it's, the, I appreciate that a lot and, and it makes me think about the craft you put into your work and um, I'm very keen to know about craft and how you navigate a poem on a Monday <laughs> a song on a Wednesday <laughs> do you see what I mean? <laughs> uh, and, and potentially 
at some point you was also writing, you was you, you wrote a, a a solo show as well, based off the back of your bartending days. So if you're now, if we go back to when you was even writing for that solo show, you were still writing songs. You were still writing poems. These are three different artistic practices and all of them involve a level of craft. What was that like for you for moving from like short form to long form? And then we're talking a musical type of form as well. Do you, how does that work in your brain? Um, I, I think it's, for me, it's, um, the way I would describe it is your body is still your body, but you don't wear a piece of cloth the same, <laughs> you know? So it's like, it's like, it's still you, but you know, you're going to wear your trousers, not the same way you wear your shirt. Yeah. You know, which is to say like, you know, you're, you're still kind of approaching it. Like this is a blank page and you have to fill it with stuff. But I, I feel that for me, um, when I'm writing a song or poetry to music, I am aware, I'm much more aware of the rhythm and the, uh, uh, the scanning and kind of like fitting and working with the music. I think it's very interesting that on this album that I released, the only one that sounds like I'm actually delivering a poem onto a track is Learn to Swim. Mm. That's because that one, I wrote the poem before the music was made. Everything else has been made to the music. So I said, I'm listening to the music. And because I'm listening to the music, I'm, I'm, I'm fitting my words to the beat and letting it sort of like, you know, ride on top of it. Uh, whereas if I'm writing a, a poem, 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 then I am the rhythm, you know, I yes. decide where the rhyme goes. And so it's, it's, you know, I'm allowed that, that extra amount of freedom, you know, to just kind of like wherever my flights of fancy take. And then when I was writing the, uh, the, the, the play, I guess because that was a lot more narrative, uh, I, I kind of, I didn't focus that much on how, I, I made it a lot more um, natural sounding, a lot more like, you know, I, I, I just, I guess I just ranted a bit more. And then when I, when I went back to work on it, rather than thinking, oh, I'm going to work on it and give it rhythm, I was more like, no, you know, make it more conversational, make it mm-hmm. a lot more relaxed, you know. You can allow yourselves a, a bit more, a bit more word, uh, a, bit, a much longer word counting. You can allow yourself to sort of ramble a bit more before you got to the, um, uh, the, the end. Um, you've mentioned it earlier. Um, in relation to if you could turn back time type thing, then documentums might be something that you would have definitely factored in terms of just the the, the um, archive of of events and people that have accessed events that that you put on. If you could give your younger self a piece of advice, document everything. <laughs> Another piece of advice. Document everything again. <laughs> you guys think I'm joking. Document everything. When you are filling out Arts Council application, tell them you want documentation budget. And so you're going to pay someone whose literal job is to come in and record and archive everything. Even if you think it's going to be a dead night, record the dead nights. People love that shit. Do you know what it is? You actually, which now makes sense because 
right now you document everything. Like no one is missing a trick. When you're performing, people know you are performing and they know and they see it. But I don't feel like I'm doing it well enough. Like I did this tour and we had a day at the train station and they were like, Inspector Sands, could Inspector Sands come to the airport? And I was like, the train's on fire. The train station's on fire. And neither of us recorded it. And I was like, why didn't I do it? I mean, it's hard. This is why I say you should get someone whose job is to do that because it's hard and it's very difficult. And very every so often, you you know, you, you just want to perform. You don't want to, you don't want to have to talk about, oh, I'm on the train and I'm eating a croissant. It's like, you know, you just, that, it can be boring. Um, do you know what it is? I'm actually quite interested in this one in relation to the, the business side of things because there's a lot of admin that we talk about sometimes that um, writers may not be aware of, or emerging writers, should I say, or people coming into this new may not be aware of. And you you do a fair bit of admin. So the, the poems are one thing, the music is one thing, but the admin side of things is is really something. Do you mind speaking mm-hmm. about just how how much admin you do and how that how that does it does it interfere with your writing process or has has it interfered with your writing process? I, I would say that uh, I used to say to as a joke when I was talking when I was doing some shows around us that. Uh, art is the stuff you do in between admin. Mm. Um, and that, I think that kind of just speaks to it. Like, I am privileged that I am born at a time when almost anyone can become an artist. Right? I, I don't think I could have made it in any other time. I don't think I was born in the right place, in the right, in the right skin, mm. in the right class. Like I think I have really benefited from uh, an what's it called a space where I could literally just put my music out and let that be the, the statement and let that sort of create the journey. Mm. But at the same time, it has meant that um, a lot of the networks uh, and sort of uh, uh, communities that could have sustained my music have either kind of locked off or crumbled. Like when I first started, I remember like uh, it was all about blogs. You had to get your music into blogs because blogs were the taste makers and they could kind of like, they could make or break a career. And I got pretty far, but that's not the case anymore. Like now it's, you you, you kind of have to find different avenues, uh, playlists and whatnot. Mm. And um, I, I think now, now I would say is the first time that I actually have a literal team of people who are I am to making this project work. Like for a long time, it has always been you have to do it yourself. And even yeah. now, you know, there's still a level of you have to do it yourself. Yeah, you have management and you have a booking agents, two booking agents, and you have PR, but you still have to do it yourself. Mm. You know, you still have to kind of do the thing that everybody else you expect someone else has to do. It's like as an artist, right, my, my job really should be to create art. But like I said, because everyone is creating art, how do you step out of the, um, how do you step out of the, uh, uh, above the noise, uh, above the kind of like the, 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 the hustle to kind of like present yourself? How do you create that audience? Um, I, one of my friends, someone I used to bartend with, 
ended up becoming the manager of um, Avicii. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I've, I've obviously approached him for advice a lot of times. And one of the things he told me was like, the moment you record your track, the moment you make an MPT of your track, it is no longer art, it's a product. And you need to start looking at it like that. You know, whether, whether you are trying to kind of like become the biggest pop star or you're trying to get funded, you are essentially asking people to invest in you, right? And this is your product. And you need to kind of remove yourself from the, uh, the, uh, the personal connections to the art. Or if people reject this, they're rejecting me. And like, no, that's not what it is. You know, you, you have to just find people who buy into your vibe and the whole thing. And that's been a, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to, to get my head around. But it's something that I've had to do all my life by myself. It's something I've I've had to kind of like uh, take the reins up and push forward because no one no one was going to do it for me. Like when I first started, um, no one was booking for gigs. Like literally, no one was booking me and Musa. No one was booking us for gigs. But we both felt like we were good. We felt like we were doing good. Mm. So what did we do? We we started the night. We apologize. Like if no one comes to us, we'll invite them. You know, if we can't be invited to go to them, we'll invite them to come to us. And then, you know, when I felt I had, like, I had a musical skill within me, no one was going to invite me to come on a track. So I started a band, started two bands, started three bands, you know. And I still remember, like, it was, I had done the LV track and I had met a bunch of musicians. They're all really cool. I won't mention them because, um, they're all friends and they didn't know me that well at the time. And I went up to them. I was like, oh my God, you guys, you're so cool. You're something. And they were like, hey, okay, hey, Josh, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I just released a, I'm releasing a project with this band called LV. I, you know, I'm quite happy about it. Yeah. And one of them was like, oh, you're a musician now. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I think I am. And I was like, okay, bye. And as I left, I heard them laughing and they might not have been laughing at me, but mm. obviously I internalized it as like, rah, they don't take me seriously. And, you know, the next question was like, well, I have to show them that I'm serious about this. There is. So I, I had to do that. And oftentimes, it's, it, as it turns out, it, it's not just about creating the music. It's also about finding places to perform. It's also about getting tours. It's also about managing your project so you don't end up completely in debt. And marketing your project, doing the PR, doing the ad, you know, thinking up kind of like the visual angle of it, or at least getting people around you, your team that will do that for you. And yeah, no one is, at least until you start making a million streams or whatnot, no one's going to do it for you. And definitely, even if you make a million streams, nobody will do it for you as well. Like ultimately, yeah, you are the one who, you are the one who's going to put a hundred percent in. You are the one who's going to, who's going to kind of like, Think about the ramifications of this. You might not have the skill sets to kind of create the finest version of like a marketing plan or a booking plan, but no one cares about it as much as you do. So if you're not involved in it and you are letting people 100% think on your behalf, okay, well, if you're lucky, you know, they think well for you. But I think generally, it's like you can't escape the admin because that's, that's kind of the business end of your art. And if you want to make art, I think some part of you has to be informed at least a bit. For me, it's always been the case that I've always had to get my hands dirty in that way. Um, it would be, it would be, it would be good to hear a poem 
Okay. And even as you was talking, I was thinking about, and you mentioned uh, in terms of your friend who now manages Avicii. And, he's, and, he, and your friend spoke about the, or your ex-colleague, shall I say, spoke about the, the, the song, once it's out, it's a product. I wonder, I wonder how, I wonder how poems are then considered once they are read aloud. Um, once it's, once it lifts off the page and they read that piece in an open mic or, or wherever, whether the poem can be considered as a product that is then, I don't know, operates as as a single would operate. Do you see what I mean? If it was coming from an EP or something, but I don't know. I don't want to, because then when it gets to when it gets to that, because I know for the most part, poets. I, I, this is just an assumption, but the idea of poets, the the idea of the poem being treated as like a single or a product is is is. Some would some would literally scratch their their eye. <laughs> They'd be like, "No, the idea of something that seems quite capitalistic to a certain certain degree, something that um doesn't sit right with with people potentially." So the poem well, can just remain as the poem. Joshua Edehen, we're not going to go there. You're going to read the poem. <laughs> read read your poem. I will give to Caesar. Give to Caesar. What is Caesar? Give to Caesar. What is Caesar? Do you live in London? Do you live off your art? Oh, well then. My God. Well then. <laughs> That's all I say. That's all I would say. It's a, it could be a discussion point for the listeners to discuss with friends and what have you. There, there's no, it's just a thought. Do you know what I mean? Because you, you mentioned uh-huh. that. So, Joshua Edehen, poem. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let me. <laughs> Let me, you just come in and you just, what's it called? You just, you just, okay, <laughs> let me read the poem and let you go. Yeah, because, uh, all right, this is a piece I've been, I've been reading a bit uh, recently. I wrote it at the, um, at the end of this show I did with uh, an old band of mine, Bitter City. And it's, I was trying to capture like that feeling. It's the end of the night, my friend. It's the end of the night. No more singing because the music is up. No more secrets because all the lights are up. No more good times because all the clubs are shut. But you, you fire starter you. Did your rounds, you tipped your cup. Personal record of 15 shots. Strangers, lovers and fisty cuffs. New friends made and in the crowd they were lost and weren't you a handle, weren't you a lot? Bus stop sing-alongs, wasn't it just? 4am morning says that's enough. And now you're out in the cold and the daylight is bold and you are all alone with the last person in the world. Yes, mm. um, Bang, 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 bang. Thank you. Thank you so much for that one. Um, yeah, man. It's, do you know what it is? Sometimes I've, I, 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 yo, I'm totally here for your songs. I, I'm totally here for your songs. <laughs> but I do miss when you read poems, man. Like, that's why I think Learn to Swim just sits with me in the way it does because it's going, just hearing you go back into that bag is, is, is special. And maybe that's what makes it 
a whole process because that the core you you dip in and out of it so well, but when you dip into it, we appreciate it even more. So I'm really thankful for that. Um, uh, what are you currently reading? What are you currently listening to? What am I currently reading? I have caught myself a lot of uh, graphic novels, but at the moment, the book I am still reading uh, is One Fine Sky Day. I think it's One Sky Day. Puppy Show. Puppy Show by Leonie Ross. Mm. Uh, it's an amazing book. Uh, um, it's like, uh, oh, This One Sky Day, that's what it's called. Uh, yeah, Leonie Ross, an amazing book. If you love magical realism and food and uh, Afro-Caribbean culture, then you cannot miss this. It will tear asunder. It's kind of like Toni Morrison with just a burst of color. And I've told her many times she should turn this book into a HBO series because the the, the kind of the, her mind is so inventive. It's scary. Mm. And what were you asking? What was I listening to? And music, yeah. What are you listening to? Uh, at the moment, um, I discovered this guy called Costa Titch, mm. which is a cool man. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a, uh, he, he passed away recently, a white dude who was doing um, Ama Piano. Ama Piano. Yeah. And because yeah, my mom was really into Ama Piano when, she, when we went down to, um, uh, to, to see her. Uh, we, we had to watch a lot of TV and she was constantly, she liked playing music videos. So she was like, I, I was making fun of, fun of her, like, oh, she only listens to like old Nigerian music from the 60s. She mm-hmm. goes, no, no, I like Costa Titch. You should get, and I was like, who's Costa Titch? Is that another old person? And then she, I see this white dude just kind of like proper yeah, vibe. vibes and everything. A vibe, so a vibe. Like, yeah, so that's that. And also I've been listening to um, uh, Scrimshare's new album, Paros, Para Exim. Uh, which is, it, it's dark, but it's dark, beautiful jazz. And uh, that's just been consuming me for a while now. I'm super jealous that I'm not on it. But he got a repeat beat point uh, on, on one of the tracks. And that that's like a, a healthy compromise. And I'd be really enjoying that. <laughs> healthy <one>. compromise. <laughs> yeah. It's a healthy, you, you know, like you, 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 gotta live, you, you have to. You have to lift the mandem up. Mandem must prevail. If not me, it must be my mandem. So when, you, when it's like, oh shit, I'm not in this thing, but you know, right, my mandem is there. Oh, yeah, yeah, also, yeah. Speakers Corner Quartet, who's another band? Mm. Oh my God, if I'm allowed, if I may be allowed, I book Speakers Corner Quartet for a Paul Jazzy show on a last minute dot com thing. Someone pulled mm. down and then somebody, went, and then a friend called me up and was like, oh, uh, we've got this band, Speakers Corner Quartet. Would you like them? And I was like, you know what? Fine, please let's get them that. Came down the loveliest guys, but one of them didn't have like a wire to perform for I think mm. for something to be plugged in somewhere. They didn't have that wire, so the the whole night had to be held up. There had to be a break, like a ten minute break, while someone going to a taxi to drive off to the person's house to get the wire to come back. And I was just constantly telling people, just stay. I promise he's going to be good. <laughs> and I never, I never heard them. So I was like looking at them, like you better be good, you uh, better be good. And the wire came. The whole room exploded. They plugged it in. It was such an amazing night. And it was so good because people waited. Everyone just was so happy. It was like a, a confirmation of the night. Like people were kind of like saying, oh, we didn't believe that. Like, you know, someone uh, recommended this night and we didn't know anybody was performing. And we're kind of worried that like this last act might be a bit of fuddly jazz, but this was like the best thing ever. And they just released their album. They're doing so well. James Messiah is on it. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, well, just beside K Tempest, it's like a whole list of like people who I'm like, Monday, Monday must prevail. So that's, it's been, I think it's been a joy to listen to that one as well. I think in closing, um, I don't know what year that was, um, was uh, Speakers Quartet. Um, I don't know what year that was, but I, I do I do feel like the journey from that point to where they're at now, because I literally watched their performance in Glastonbury. I wasn't at Glastonbury, but I watched it back. But to get to that point, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of perseverance to just know that you know what, great things are coming and and great things are gonna continue to 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 come as this journey goes. And I think the same goes for you, good sir, in terms of the years that you put into this, the time that you carry on in 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 exploring your art, and I'm just thankful. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. I look forward to see where That's this nice, next man. journey takes you, and to celebrate you even more. You know what I mean? So. Now I mean, likewise, isn't it? Likewise. Until next time. Until next time. Until the next time. Thank you for listening to Apples and Snakes, the podcast. I've been your host, Yomi Shode, and I hope you have enjoyed today's deep dive into the lives of black British poets and creatives. Thank you to our audio producer, Drew Hawley, at The Lab Studios. If you want to find out more about Apples and Snakes, head over to applesandsnakes.org and follow at Apples and Snakes on all social media channels. And remember, if you like what you are hearing, please, please subscribe wherever you would usually listen to your podcast and rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.